You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. This is the 3CR Garden Show. And unfortunately, I'm sorry I'm a bit late there. I had a little panic and forgot to turn the mics on the right way, which was rather amateurish of that of me. I'm Virginia Hayward, with the apologies, and with me in the, in the studio is Helen Page from Garden History, Chris Williams, lecturer at Burnley in Auburn Horticulture, and Stephen Wells, horticultural therapist and garden coordinator at the Austin. Good morning, gang. Good morning. Good morning. Um, and apologies to all our poor listeners who had what at least two minutes of dead air there, which is most unpleasant, and I have to say very unpleasant for us as well. <laughs> we went into a fair level of panic, didn't we? <laughs> and, Stephen, you recently had your garden open. I did. I was very fortunate to have an open garden through the Open Gardens Victoria scheme. Um, which was fantastic. So that was in, um, what is it, January? So just uh, about six weeks ago. Um, and it was fantastic. Really lovely opportunity to open my garden with my neighbours. So I live in a unit complex um, and my immediate neighbours, uh, Britt and Caleb, have got a unit and their garden um, has been established over the last year with a bit of vigour from their point of view, which has been wonderful. Um, so it was really great to join with them and open our unit gardens. It was I think we called it small spaces, creative places. So it was really just about saying what can be, well, saying, but also talking about and showing what can be done in a small spaces um, and just the creativity you can have with that. So it was a great experience. It, it's it, it's interesting also that they're now there's the small gardens, the big gardens, the grand gardens, and it's actually part of what is important, having all those different sorts of gardens. It included. is. And I think, you know, when we were chatting with um, the team at Open Gardens Victoria but in the initial <laughs> stages of it, um, they were really excited about having um, small garden spaces open because it's often, as you said, it's often the larger gardens or um, rural settings where it's a different, you know, it's a different design 
well, my approach garden, and a different, um, you know, different conditions and different situations to, and challenges. So, well, my garden was opened very soon after the lockdown. Yes, because it's a huge garden. It's a beautiful. I remember meandering about it, enjoying it all. And I think because it was just after lockdown and people were so thrilled to get out again, it became a really that was what was important about it that it had the huge view. And that there is a lot of garden and a lot of people picnicked. You know, yep. they just sat on the grass and had some lunch, which was lovely. And, and all these different uh, – there's one coming on next year, which was just viewed yesterday, which is apparently incredibly steep. And um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the selectors who looked at it said, I think it's an under-45s garden. Because <laughs> well, it's so that. steep. <laughs> but so I think that's – you know, we – you look at any houses nowadays, we're not all on flat ground. We're not all on, we're all on different shaped spots and have different interests and passions in our gardens. Um, so it's really great to have different uh, styles and some that are in really challenging spots. And people go, oh, well, actually, that's like the bottom part of my garden. Or, um, you know, taking a friend going, we'll go to this garden because it's a, got a steep aspect. And uh, that's like yours. Let's go and check it out and mm-hmm. see what you can do. Which is what Open Gardens is about. It's yes. about going, finding, getting inspired, seeing plants that you might not have seen before and going, oh, ah, having a chat with a garden owner and going, why, how did you do that? Where did you get that plant from? Like, why, like It's that whole inspirational uh, learning experience, which I really find fascinating about Open Gardens. And I think one of the important things with Open Gardens is actually sharing uh, spaces that aren't usually available. And as as we become more and more crowded in this city, which, you know, Melbourne has been growing at an unbelievable rate, although lockdown has helped a little bit, but we've been growing terribly fast and we have to use all our open spaces really sensibly. Yep. Which, of course, Helen, is part of what you do because you've been very involved in turning the Borondara Cemetery into something that's beautiful. Yes, well, in 2015, the Friends of the Borondara Cemetery... Um, started working bees at the cemetery. It, um, the Burundara Cemetery was laid out as a garden cemetery in the late 1800s and uh, sadly it hadn't been gardened for many years. It was probably in the turn of the century, the turn into the 20th century, it was said to be one of the places to go to because it was so beautiful and then it was maintained like that until at least the First World War and possibly the Second World War. And then after that, it just steadily declined. So uh, the friends decided to uh, see what they could do about it. And and much of the cemetery was... um, Many of the graves were designed to have gardens in them because they're large earth-topped graves. So... And since 2015, we've made a remarkable difference to the place, and uh, and we're hoping it can continue. And it's it's in keeping with what's happening overseas, where um, particularly in the UK and Europe and and the North America, uh, cemeteries are seen as places places for the community, beautiful places for the community, and uh, places of habitat where. Um, Wildlife and uh, the birds and the bees are um, are encouraged, and uh, Burundara Cemetery, which is thirty one acres in the middle of a built up area, is an amazing area for the locals, and may it continue to be so. Mm. That's right. I can um, 
concur with Helen there because uh, I was very lucky to do a plan for Burundara Cemetery, largely based on uh, Helen pushing me and getting me the gig. And uh, I was really taken how beautiful Burundara Cemetery is, especially with the work that Helen and her volunteers have done. But it, it's no exaggeration to say that it wasn't just made beautiful in the Victorian 19th century period so that people who were visiting um, you know, relative deceased relatives could enjoy it. It was actually designed like a park. That, that's clear. I went into Trove, into looking at all the old digitised articles, and it's remarkable finding these accounts of people going on a, a Sunday buggy ride to go and look at the gardens in the graves, not just to put flowers on a grave. Really, as staggeringly different culture than we have today, really. Well, of course, in a lot of places, the cemeteries predate the big parks like in in New York the cemetery predates Central Park and and was part of the inspiration for Central Park in fact because it was people flocked there it became the I can't remember what it's called um Greenwood Cemetery Wood Green Wood Green Mm -hmm. and it it was more the only place that was more visited was Niagara Falls this is back in the 1800s, it was so popular and it became part of the inspiration because, of course, the cities were foul back then. They really were, and that's what I found doing my uh, research for the, the plan for Burundara Cemetery was that the, you know, the idea of parks in the 19th century being lungs of the city because the cities were in such terrible condition, actually the cemeteries were being looked at in the same way. So those of, those of us who teach the history of urban parks really need to talk about cemeteries at the same time. They weren't a side note. The idea was we have booming population, i.e. more dead people. Um, the, the churchyard, the graveyards were in terrible condition and you had you know, stuff that's a bit disturbing early on a Sunday morning, but lots of grave robbers going on. All the medical schools that were developing needed bodies and that was a racket and the people who stole the bodies were called the resurrectionists. <laughs> I mean, this this really was a thing. So it was a kind of a crisis. Um, so the idea was let's build these really extraordinary spaces that don't just cater for uh, how to deal with bodies, dead bodies, but to make these places beautiful and less intimidating. And there was a, there were this big emphasis on a botanical theme as well. Um, so and you said Virginia before. I mean, Melbourne's population is, despite the pandemic, pretty much hurtling towards nine million people by twenty fifty, which is scarily not far away what are we now roughly 4.75 or something so a, a percentage increase we'll call it 80 percent my maths isn't good at the moment um and so we do need to look at places like cemeteries or schools after hours we need to think more creatively about open space because we're going to have more people jammed into all our suburbs and so and i know for a lot of listeners it might be i don't really want to go visit a cemetery but once you get hooked on it <laughs> you'll find that they're going to become the kind of place, especially the old historic ones, are going to become the kind of places where we can allow people to go and enjoy them the way people did 100 years ago. Um, So that really means Burundara, otherwise known as Kew Cemetery, Melbourne General Cemetery, which is an interesting case study in itself. Maybe we'll have time to talk about that. St Kilda, Brighton. But, and then, of course, there's the current cemeteries, which are also really very botanical too. I mean, Springvale is literally called the Springvale Botanical Cemetery. So there's the new ones with that emphasis, and then there's the old ones that are my favourite just because they don't just have the big old trees but they, and, and the kind of work that Helen's done with, you know, intricate gardens in them. 
Um, but they also have all the over-the-top extraordinary sculptures that people invested in, in the 19th century, everything from Gothic crosses to Celtic crosses to, to angels and then sometimes these exceptional monuments like the Springthorpe Memorial at uh, Kew with its, well, how do you describe it, Helen? Like a classical Greek temple with mm. a with a lead light ceiling that like makes everything glow and, yeah. And a beautiful sculpture and... And a garden designed around it, so it's um, it's the complete package, the Springthorpe Memorial. Well, my favourite cemetery is, I lived in London for 20 years and my place backed onto a cemetery and it was, it was one of the um, seven that were put in, uh, seven private cemeteries that were put into London because there was just nowhere to put the dead bodies and they were yeah. getting buried in, at shallower and shallower levels and it was becoming absolutely even more putrid. And it was designed originally as an arboretum and cemetery together. And it has... it has, uh, I don't know if it's still true, but at one stage it had more variety of trees than Kew Gardens. You know, it is... So it's really very special. And then, of course, it got abandoned, like so many cemeteries were, after the Second World War, which was fantastic for it because it just became a wildlife haven. And it has since been rescued and managed partly by the borough, which is Hackney, and partly by a trust. But it's very much managed as a wildlife place. And you're talking about... Um, and it's a cemetery that was particularly um, inhabited by the um, non-conformists, like the Booths, who were the founders of the Salvation Army. They're all buried there. And my favourite grave there is one with this absolutely beautiful sculpture of a lion and it was the Bostock family who ran um, ran circuses in America and had lions. And, and it's my, I've got so many photos of Sylvie, my daughter, there when she was a little girl sitting on the line, when she's a big girl, you know, 20, coming back to the cemetery. It's just fabulous. That, that, uh, talking about the nonconformists, I think that's something that's really uh, interesting when you walk around the old cemeteries is seeing the demarcation between the different denominations, So, which I don't think really anyone really worries about anymore but you know suddenly you think oh i'm in the baptist section here's the mm. wesleyan section then they might mysteriously call it methodist later on and then it's the anglican and the presbyterian and you think okay this was a very big deal and it was actually part as you're suggesting part of the reform to say okay we've got all these religious differences but we're going to make sure everyone has a uh, a section and i believe that when they used to set up the trust of these cemeteries every denom- denomination had a seat on the board I mean, it's mm. very different. Well, and of course, for a, a city like either Melbourne or London, mm. where Christianity is no longer the totally dominant force, yeah, these distinctions become even more ridiculous. So that they're a real legacy. I will say, at the Melbourne General Cemetery, you do, um, as you come around one of the corners, you'll suddenly see buried in the year 5,720 and you first of all you think oh okay so it's a Jewish then you realise it's the Jewish section yep. so there's a lot of interest in these places I must admit that I haven't um, it's on my to do list um, to actually go and visit the Burundara Q Cemetery because I follow Helen on Insta and get inspired by the horticultural delights. Because Instagram has become very much a place of yeah, horticulture. And so mm. it's, it's one of those things that I go, oh, because she's very good at, you're very good at um, posting photos of what's flowering and 
what's changed and you've just had a working bee and this is what this is the result of it um so from that point of view like that's one of the things that i'm really inspired by it like and I know we've had lockdown, so I, I can't. But I can't use that as an excuse. I've been slack, um, and but it is on my list to go. Right, I want to go and wander around it um, because of the imagery that I've seen, and um, to see it as a horticultural place. And I wonder, just listening to what we've been talking about, going, it, you know, we have society tends to have this really interesting relationship with cemeteries, mm. of um, you know, it's not the place that you go and spend time. Like you're saying, it's not where you picnic. It's not. But it historically was, but it's almost like, well, wonder what would happen if we flipped that back. How would our discussions around death be about? And, you know, how life, death, you know, just whatever we all think of it, but just that whole concept, because it's almost like a taboo subject. Oh, you don't talk about that because someone's died and it's emotionally traumatic for us. And so therefore we don't necessarily talk about it or don't even go there. I know, you know, every time I go to the, to catch up with family and, I'm not that keen on going to see mum's grave because it's like, well, that takes me back to a time that I didn't like. So I, I get that, um, as in not didn't like the the, the, the death of or the, the trauma of well, not the trauma the the loss the emotion of the loss and so it's um, so I get that, but I almost there's a little part of me that goes, gee, wouldn't it be interesting if we could flip how we use that space mm-hmm. and it's not seen as um, a sad um, emotional space from the, the, the context of someone passing away, loved ones passing away. But it is actually a spot where we, we go and we spend time and um, enjoy the horticultural context of it, the gardens and the, the open space. And the clean air. And the clean air. But then subtly the conversations are then more about death, dying, you know, how we approach that. Because, you know, I know it's a slight different topic here, but one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated about is that there's really only one certain thing in life, and that is death. And yet yeah. we don't really talk about it. And yet here's an opportunity a space that can potentially change that dynamic. And I think it's interesting that, as Helen and I have been saying, that the, these are big old historic Victorian cemeteries and, and the ones in London that Virginia mentioned, they they embrace death, if you like. Yep. They, I mean, it was everywhere. It was prevalent. People of all classes died earlier, quite often. And so I think there was such an effort to make these places beautiful. Yep. So I guess, and look, to be honest, if you go into the history, the commercial culture around funerals, still today, but it was extremely expensive and everyone felt very obliged to spend a lot of money on elaborate graves, the funerals themselves. And the, the, the story is that it was really the First World War that killed that off because in Europe there were so many dead soldiers who couldn't come back. Anyway, the point being, I agree with you. And I think that that conversation about death, it is taboo. And there's something in making these spaces friendly and beautiful again, because some of them aren't. That's I guess that's the yeah. point. Melbourne General Cemetery, for example, is very neglected. Yes. Well, just to touch on the, uh, on the, uh, well, the acknowledgement of death or the celebration of death, the Buddhists... Um, they, they, they have these um, twice a year. They have what's called a grave sweeping day, when they come and visit, clean the grave and sweep it. And they, um, and at Burundara, there are two, uh, two Chinese sisters who come, and I've met them and got to know them quite well over the years. They come on the Saturday and clean their their father's grave, and then on the Sunday, the whole family comes back. 
and they bring a little picnic table and have a picnic lunch and, you know, they celebrate it. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the, I think the father died in, in the 80s, 1980s, so they've been following that custom ever since and, and it's beautiful. So this is the but three... talking about the plants and talking about um, uh, what um, Stephen referred to, what I put on Instagram... Um, I've um, over the years that I've been involved, all my friends know what I'm what I'm doing there, and so they they ring me up and say, "Oh, I'm splitting up such and such today. You know, you know do you want it for the cemetery?" And I, it's, several times I've said, "No, I think there'll be. Um, I think it'll need a lot of." Water, water. Oh well, I'll be throwing it in the green bin if you don't take it. And I said, "Oh, give it to me. We'll try it." And it's been amazing. What well, some has of survived. my salvias are there. A lot of uh, oh. a lot of <laughs> Virginia salvias and other things from Virginia's are there. Oh. So we're we're building up a terrific range of plants there. And, That's what uh, I'm interested to know more mm. about. Like, what plants are you are you choosing? And and I guess you know this comes back to my. Uh, uh, horticultural training is about you know parks and gardens, I mean, mm. maintenance and management. So, what plants are you choosing, and how are you finding out how that goes? One of the other things that they've done in Stoke Newington, where I used to live, is in the sem- they've they there's a real problem with horse chestnuts in Britain. They've been getting disease, and the horse chestnuts in Clissold Park, which is the nearby park, are in a mess. The horse chestnuts in the cemetery are not, and they think one of the reasons is that the trees are left in the cemetery. Because, because it's not a park, there's not such an obsession with keeping things um, tidy and safe. And so trees are left dead. And they'll take the top off them because that actually might fall on someone, but the trees are left dead and alive. It's, and all those dead trees have made a huge difference. Like they've got a thing called a flame shield mushroom, which isn't, is hardly found anywhere because dead wood is so rarely left and it is such an important process. And they think with the... The other one is um, phytophthora. They, the phytophthora in the cemetery is much less than elsewhere and they think it's because there's such a variety, there's so many different things going on that the phytophthora is competing for the space. Whereas the the thing that's killing the horse chestnuts and the phytophthora are both got free range in the gardens because they're always getting mowed and anything that's unwell is taken out and you know just just that liberate it's so good for the for all sorts of wildlife including all the little tiny things that we don't tend to think about. Yeah, and I think that's such a great point because. Um, the great advantage they have over there is that most things that, that re-sprout, and when you have a neglected cemetery and things start, you know, plants start growing spontaneously and you get that very wild effect, in England and Europe you straight away recognise that it has conservation value mm. and you can kind of manage it for that. Mm. So here, um, obviously, we have the nature conservation value that is more around Indigenous plants, obviously, and so Burundara Cemetery does have that. It has great you know, patches of remnant grasses, despite previous herbicide regimes, they've hung in there. And it also has really beautiful river red gums. So historic Victoria Park next door, red gums have seeded over there over the years. And so then you have the debate, well, you, you know, when these cemeteries go wild, they're so beautiful, but then you have to, you kind of have to manage it. But you don't Because you don't want something that's clinical and sterile. So, but then on the other hand, if you let trees get too enormous, they'll lift graves and all the rest of it. I think a balance is good. I think, um, 
you know, at, at Melbourne General Cemetery, you have massive old figs um, that that make it look like Angkor Wat. I mean, which is one of my favourite places I've ever been to. And if the argument would be that if, as they say in England, if some, if 80, 90% of the graves, the beautiful old headstones and everything else, if no one's ever vis- not visiting them anymore, because the families have long forgotten these places, then the discussion or the debate has to be, well, can we let them be a bit more wild and beautiful without, it's not, is it disrespecting the people who are there? My argument would be no, as long as it's done really carefully. In other words, allowing things to be a bit, bit wild in some places and then have the kind of fantastic gardening that Helen does. You could have a mixture, but we haven't. We don't really have that. Um, no, of course. One of the know. things that's happened in in Europe is that the space is so contested that graves in some areas now all the gravestones are just moved to the edge, and the middle is turned into a park because there's so little open space. Even uh, there's an, if you look up, uh, you know, Thomas Hardy, the great novelist in Wikipedia or elsewhere, you'll see he actually had a job doing one of those clearances, supervising or actually physically doing it. One of the early uh, cemeteries in London, his job was to move all the old headstones to the side, clump them around big old trees and then turn it into a park. It's mm. quite quite a strange Well, job. the old, old cemetery in Seymour, that happened and that's now called Pioneer Park and my grandparents' um, headstone is around the edge of, the, edge of this park. Yeah. And my grandparents are in Seymour Cemetery too. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. You know, maybe it just you know, makes us think about how we actually do cemeteries to start with. In a city like Sydney or a city like Melbourne, we have to have places in the middle of summer that are cooler. Mm. And the things that makes a city cooler are trees. I and mean, that's the trouble with Melbourne Cemetery. You go, I mean, I'm a bit of a, of a graveyard tourist, you know. I love cemeteries. And you go into Melbourne Cemetery. I'd never go into Melbourne Cemetery in the middle of summer. It is just concrete and hot yeah. it is not an, it's not a welcoming space it, it needs well, some the trees. of the, some of the trees at Burundara to I mean there's a pair of weeping elms together and to go under that canopy on a hot day I mean it's deg- several degrees uh, cooler cooler and you know there's a couple of massive oaks there and it's a totally different climate yeah. below them yeah. this is the 3CR garden show if you wish to give us a ring, you can do so on 94190155 or you can send us a text on 0488 809 You can also email us for next week at gardening at 3cr.org.au. And we also want to do a subscriber drive because, of course, this station only, only survives because of its listeners. And so we're very keen on people, please, subscribing to 3CR. And it, if the people subscribe to The Garden Show, they're going, they've got several packs. So if you subscribe in March, the, you could, you'll go into the draw for a pack. And one pack has got Seasol Garden Calendar, Seasol Earth Care Pyrethrum, Plant Food, Lawn feed and gardener's soap, and the other pack has got seaweed solution, power feed, fertilizer, and soil conditioner, earth care organic weed killer, and plant food, pots and plants, for pots and plants indoors and out. So, if you subscribe, you will go into the drawer because these things are heavy, you'll have to pick them up. But 
the winners will be announced on air. So we really want you to subscribe. So to subscribe, you ring in on 94198377 or 94190155. And it is $35 for unwaged and $75 for waged. $150 for bands, organisations or people who wish to give as much as they can to the station. So everybody have a think of subscribing. We all subscribe. It is part of um, coming coming on air that we subscribe to the station. So back to cemeteries. The other thing I noticed when I was looking at it was that in places like Berlin and Bratislava, they've been the scientists have been in there doing studies on what is available, and they are finding that there is really rare things have survived in cemeteries. Again, I suppose because of you know, dead trees and all the different... because we don't clean up endlessly. I mean, one of the worst things for nature is really tidy gardens, after all. Yeah, well, I mean, rural cemeteries are really well known in southern Australia for being um, preserves of Indigenous grasslands. You know, so Truganina in western Melbourne is really famous, but there's lots of them. And so I think... I mean, I, and I knew that and I'd seen a few, but I would, I, that's why I was pleasantly surprised at Burundara that in the middle of the city it had that Stiper and Danthonia and a few things hanging in there. Just hanging in. Just hanging in. <laughs> because, yeah, going back to this manicured thing, Virginia, it was actually worse than that because really what happened after the Second World War was that there was a loss of interest in the gardening general in cemeteries. People no longer went to visit just for, you know, hanging out on a Sunday and so there was just this sort of blanket regime of spraying some of the photos of Burundara Cemetery from the I guess the 80s Helen mm. it, it's nuked mm. there's not there's no gardens there's, there's just nothing it's just sprayed to keep it um, completely bare and that's thankfully has changed I mean Melbourne General probably however this would be done needs to have both uh, vegetation put back in in and around graves and also needs way more trees to connect it to Princess Park and to the rest. I mean, it's yeah, to connect it to the rest of the kind of urban forest being developed in the city of Melbourne. It's not actually run by the city of Melbourne. I guess that's a problem. The, the, the trust who run it probably don't see it as in terms of its horticultural or its biodiversity value, but that's, I think, the, the shift we need to make. And it is so important that they are then... Because Melbourne urban forest is going to make such a difference to Melbourne. It will cool it down. And they've done, they've done work in the city where there are trees and where there aren't. And huge difference if you, if you measure actually the temperature on the asphalt under a tree and not under a tree. The difference is, is 15, 20 degrees. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's one of the most, you know, they're probably one of the easiest wins around climate change adaptation is just putting in more, more trees. It's not necessarily even about the fixing the carbon it's just about making us handle the heat better mm. um yeah and i think when um, chris mentioned the yeah you know, the management of cemeteries and they're managed by by these independent trusts that uh, report to the health department and the health department appears to have you know all the say on how cemeteries are run but the health department doesn't have on their staff horticulturalists, environmentalists, ecologists, and uh, so there needs to be there needs to be some discussion about a broader um, management of uh, of cemeteries, so that 
Heritage Victoria and uh, and Dwelp have um, have some say, particularly in the heritage cemeteries where there are um, you know these older older trees and older grasslands. So uh, that's something that needs needs quite a bit of effort in put into. And there's so clearly the um, the lead overseas. I was so interested when I saw that Bratislava has been doing all this research. In Berlin, in Berlin, they found five sorts of bats, every one endangered, in the big cemetery there, and and the fact that the cemeteries pre in America, all over America, the cemeteries predated the parks. Yep. Well, Brompton, Brompton, the big cemetery in London, one of the Ring of Seven, that in um, you know in the last twenty or thirty years has had. Just a total revival in, uh, and it hasn't been cleaned up and tidied up. Um, it's the cemeteries in London don't have these um, earth-top graves, so they're not they're not gardened as such like um, like we can at, at Burundara. But they're, they're, the emphasis on habitat is just uh, you know, paramount, and uh, and and yeah, you know, just following Brompton Cemetery on on Instagram. I mean, it people are people are visiting there and and using it. You know, and I mean, during COVID in London with lockdown, you know, it was it was very popular. So, uh, but the whole the whole swing in in the UK and probably in North America too at the moment is that gardens are being recognized for their for their role in uh, you know in providing habitat and and that's being led by Fergus Garrett at uh, at Great Dixter I mean the work he's doing and having an environmental audit done uh, there is is inspirational and just in the last week I watched a webinar from from the UK on Beth Chatter Garden and they've now in, employed a uh, an environmental um, advocate. I've forgotten the term now, and uh, I, I mean they're they're picking up that work too, and they're not calling bugs anymore. They're accepting you know all the all the all the all the bugs and 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 recognizing their place in the in the in the environmental cycle. So. Um, you know, it's, it's it's exciting work, and I'm looking forward to it happening here. <laughs> it's a big change to. Um, I, I noticed 20 years ago when I when I was working in nature conservation that Brits that I worked with were much more onto insects and spiders and invertebrates generally, mm-hmm. and I thought, wow, we're we're very focused here on birds and mammals, maybe reptiles, but we're 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 really it's really changed in Australia. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, everyone's interested in pollinators and. Um, you know the role, the, yeah. just the role of bio, uh, invertebrates as a key uh, feature of biodiversity. That's a big change, and also mushrooms. Uh, and and mm. fungi are much more interesting. Fungi are very they're on trend. Mm. Yes. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's kind of like do you know if it was a bit of a field of dreams situation, like build it and they will come. Do we do we change spaces like um, cemeteries? create them to be not quite a botanic garden but in essence a garden that you go oh have you been to mm-hmm. and people go no and then all of a sudden you're going right well there's these you know beautiful native gardens and then there's these this area that's these perennial gardens and then there's these and people are going oh wow did not expect to see that so that draws them in and then 
Well, have they changes been? that perception? Absolutely. So has the semi Burundara Helen been in the Open Garden scheme? Is that possible? No, no. Okay, no. It, it was um, somebody did did speak to me about it a few years ago, and mm. then it, nothing came of it. Yeah. yeah. I'll say quickly too that um, when I was doing my study of, of Burundara Cemetery during the first or the second lockdown, I can't keep track of them all. It was quite busy with people using it there, mm. and so Helen's space. a big yep. Helen's a big Carlton supporter, and Stephen Silvani was wandering around having a power walk one day. I don't think you've actually seen. No, him. I've never no. seen him there. Anyway, <laughs> but a it's interesting. Side story. At a time when we couldn't get out as much, people sought them out. Like mm. there was that was the open space that mm. people went to. Mm. That's that's a really interesting observation. Hearing you say about what happened in London, I mean, mm. if there's not far that you can go. You find what you can, where, what it is within that time, that um, kilometrage or mile for London, mm. that distance, and you seek them out, and you go, ah, oh. so that. Yeah, I struck up conversations with people that um, wouldn't normally you know, be in there, and uh, I, I mean, it's easy to strike up a conversation with people wandering around the cemetery because I just say, oh, are you finding what you're looking for, or something, <laughs> and they, they say, oh no, we. We're just amazed. We didn't ever know what was behind this yep. big wall. <laughs> yeah, and of course there is also the, um, you know, people searching for ancestors, right? I, well, that's mm. what I noticed. When yes. I was there. People would mm. wander up and say, um, I'm looking for my great-grandfather who was a publican in Collingwood. Um, and apparently he's buried as well. There's 85,000 people in here. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so there's, there's, there's that, so quote-unquote, mm. grave to ancestor searching. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, which is... But, well, there's but, two, hmm. over 200,000 people in the Stoke Newington Cemetery. Yeah. That's a hell of a lot of people, mm. isn't it? Over yeah. 170,000 in Highgate. The only one I can think of is Mark's. <laughs> there's yeah. another 170,000 there. That's right, and his, his uh, headstone is notoriously um, kind of quite brutal and ugly, really. I mean, it's just, these, just the giant head of Karl Marx. Yes. Right? But, yeah. It's not as beautiful as my lion. Exactly. <laughs> The Bostocks had a really good idea, I think, when they worked out what they were going to do for themselves. But Stephen, in a way, you've done the same thing at the Austin. Yeah, I guess that's you know it's a really good point. Um, that's had you know hospitals um, and gardens within hospitals has probably had a bit of a similar journey. Um, you know, decades ago, when um, they could facilitate it in a different era, you had a, a high quantity of garden staff, so they were garden spaces and you know we go back to the the whole aspect of respite and recovery and you know before we decided before we found out there was bacteria people were rolled outside go outside get fresh air get into the green spaces um but that changed and also you know now we've got um increasing demand on the spaces that we do have for hospitals so therefore open space um is impacted when we need to considered less important yeah and i mean it's 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 a hierarchy of needs and you go right we've got a finite piece of land how do we fit this new facility on that we now need to meet the demands of the community um so you know i guess that's where i've had a bit of fun both with actual plants and green spaces and creating them where i can but also being thinking about where we can bring nature-based imagery even into spaces that we haven't had and you know, I'd, my bit of a mantra I kind of keep going for me is why do hospitals need to look like hospitals? Mm. We have this perception that they're just this look like X. And we go, well, why? Um, we can change that. We can 
influence that. And for me, my element of that is actually looking at where can we and how can we bring gardens and connections to nature back into that context. Um, numerous stories and anecdotal um, things that I've experienced where people have commented about the, the importance it has meant for them to have a chance to go outside, to get off of the ward, um, for their family members, for friends, to be able to come and um, use that use those spaces as a bit of a you know, decompression for them as well before they're going into in see family or spending time with family because they're dealing with the trauma or change of um, circumstances for their loved ones and they've used the garden just to catch their breath and just go, right, I need to have some calm before I go in and um, and deal with what we need to deal with. Um, but, you know, really importantly, I look at these spaces and the importance of them in a bit of a threefold way. It's for patients, it's for visitors, but it's also for staff. Um, and while we haven't had visitors really in the last couple of years with hospitals, we've definitely had patients, we've definitely had staff. And equally, um, the importance of having outside spaces for for those two cohorts um is pretty pretty important i mean i'm a green flag waver of green spaces anyway so i'll be passionate about that um and i'm look i'm realistic i know the that there are different challenges within healthcare settings different demands but what drives me is the the, the need to increase green spaces because we talk about them for our health and our well-being Stephen, also with your work, you know, I should say that Stephen's uh, come in to teach uh, horticultural therapy to my students over the years. And so uh, the, to me, the most incredible thing you've done is that you're not just sort of tinkering. You, you do your gardens at the hospitals are well designed overall. And then the planting design is really carefully thought through. So these aren't, you know, if you were to leave, for example, you're not setting this up for it as a failure for anyone else. These are correct. And I think yeah. that's, that's a really good point, Chris. Um, you know, I'd love to have so many more different things, but I've yeah. got to be really um, thoughtful and planning around the maintenance and management of the green spaces. So, you know, I have a probably have a, a reduced palette and, you know, there's some good plants that I use and some that are favourites that I just have planted and then I keep propagating from them, you know. And agave is a brilliant plant because it'll keep producing, but also gives you new stuff that, you know, Realistically, I don't have a huge budget either. I don't really have a budget. A lot of the garden spaces that I create um, are from donations and support from the community, but also supported by the hospital. Um, so I've got to be realistic about how I can create a space that can be well maintained. And if it doesn't have high maintenance, high levels of capacity to maintain it, that it will still thrive and survive. The last thing I really want to create is a garden that needs a lot of energy to look after it. We don't have the capacity. It then falls over and starts to look shabby. It dies and actually then defeats the whole purpose of what we're wanting the garden space to achieve. Mm. So if you're sick, you're unwell, you're feeling crap, you're looking like, you know, you're dealing with some heavy stuff and then you just look around and go, well, this looks pretty depressing as well. That doesn't help that at all. So that's why, you know, it's about choosing things that while they may not be a botanical, beautiful garden space, they're practical they provide greenery or views of or within spaces that people can actually still enjoy and still, you know, as we all are as gardeners, we look at stuff and go, oh, we could do that a bit better. Oh, that's not quite right. But everyone else is looking at it going, oh, my goodness, this is really good. Oh, can I have the, oh, maybe I could do those plant combination at home. 
So therefore, you know, horticulturally you're inspiring some people as well. But it's also about being very practical and realistic about how we can maintain and sustain. Which you talked about, and, Helen, with and plants at the cemetery. And I think they do need, um, uh, yeah, both in the hospital sense and in cemeteries, uh, good horticulture is required, and uh, and yeah, horticultural leadership is required because uh, I mean the cemetery. There's a lot of renewal needed. I mean, it's all very well to to pl- plant things in graves, but they need. Uh, not a not a weekly or but I mean for instance iris we've planted a lot of iris there and I would say you know probably in the garden sense you'd you'd want to lift them and and divide them every two or three years but maybe you'd stretch it out a bit in the cemetery thing to maybe four or five years but then it gets to the stage where you've just got to divide them and uh, and refresh them and uh, and good pruning i mean good pruning of uh, of uh, of salvias so that um, you know they they're constantly being refreshed and uh, so you know it's not just lazy gar- lazy gardening no. because that does lazy gardening does horticulture is such a you know because they it looks tatty in no time but if it's good horticulture and and it, it, with volunteers i mean you can guide them i mean uh, you know uh, but there are areas at burundara cemetery that certainly need refreshing of work that we've done but uh, it's a bit beyond uh, a bit beyond us so uh, that's that's a worry that you know, you are making making a problem <laughs> Yeah. But it's both in both settings, and I've seen both your work, it's that incredible discipline of simple plantings that's not lessening the effect. That's, mm. that's, what, I, that's what I find so mm. inspiring. Yep. I mean, in the cemetery uh, situation, you know, 120, 140 years ago, these gardens were often done... The, the gardens that were planted in the graves were diverse. They were gardens. People would hire private gardens to come in and create pretty... I mean, it was competitive. Families were... Was a status thing, so they were very floriferous, shall we say, and that's when you don't have the luxury of guard full time gardeners to do that for you. You have to use um, simple plantings. Like look, each grave is actually lends itself to a mini monoculture, if you were. So that one can the next one is iris, the next one is cannas, for example. And then the overall effect is very diverse, mm. rather than having ten plants in one grove, which quickly mm. turns into a mess. Yeah, and I think you know, for me, it touched on a good point. I I love flowers, but I also um, that for me in my setting requires a little bit more maintenance. So I look at I'm more so a foliage gardener, but look at what look at that because there's some amazing um, combinations of foliage that you can have colours, let alone shapes and habits that give you almost a flower garden and but well maybe not really a flower colour but a garden but a coloured colourful interesting garden. Because you're using different different yeah. textures and different different yep. shades of, of green and grey. I mean one of the, you know one of my favourite ones is the um well what Purple Hearts is a common name. It's probably the Tradescantia pallida or Setcracia pallida. It depends on where we're at with it. But, I, you know, it's a purple foliage. Nice, beautiful little pink flower, but a purple foliage. Like everything is purple. And winter, the frost can get it, but it will bounce, bounce back up. Back. 
and you get the beautiful foliage. Like I remember, I still vividly remember when I first came across that planted with agave at the Botanic Gardens. Mm. And, you know, coming back to good old get out and see a garden um, uh, approach, that is one of the amazing spaces to go and learn. So I remember learning about that there and seeing it there and going, oh, I like that combo. Maybe I could do that too. Um, and there's a new section in the, in the Botanic Gardens, the Melbourne Botanic Gardens. They've put in a sensory garden. Yes. It's one yep. of the things that's so exciting about the Botanic Gardens is they do keep changing and developing. Correct. And, and even in the forest. sensory garden is the, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, in the, in the forest section as well. There's the new little spaces in there for the health and well-being and healing context as well. So, yeah, absolutely. That's why I love getting out to see gardens. And coming back to open gardens as well, I mean, that's what I th- you touched on that at the beginning where, we, you know, I think we were just devoid of that because of all the last two years so we were just keen because you know for me as a a a student of horticulture 20 years ago i loved going to places like botanic gardens or established parklands one because you see a diversity of plants two because you go oh so that's how big it gets right i know that plant now i'm not going to put that or suggest that for this position because it's going to get 20 metres tall and yeah. not five. Yeah. So you learn and you get inspired. So that's and, a lot of stuff. And there's those forgotten ones we've got, like Burnley. Yep. Burnley is a public garden. It's the second absolutely. oldest garden in, in Melbourne. Fernie Creek, another absolutely beautiful garden which people can wander around. And, yep. and there are quite a lot of almost forgotten gardens in Melbourne that need to... Shh, don't tell too many people. Oh, no, well, no, it's too late for Burnley because during the pandemic, I mean pre-pandemic or... BC, as Stephen says, before COVID, the Burnley Gardens were very much a secret garden. Mm. There they are, X number of acres, um, beautiful, complex landscape. And then people just poured in. It used to be that if you were there on a weekend, someone might come up to you and say, excuse me, am I allowed in here? (laughs) I remember one guy saying, I've lived in South Yarra all my life and I had no idea, you know, (coughs) this kind of thing. But now there were were just picnics everywhere. Um, Which is exciting because, you know, what that does is it, it tells us that people... Um, uh, love them, seek them out, and are continuing to use them, whereas they were probably just you know blissfully getting on with the busyness of life um, and not actually stopping and going right. What's in my local area? What is my local hub? Where where are the treasures that I can go and see? Walk through the cemetery. Where's you know the gardens at Burnley? This is the Three CR Garden Show. If you wish to contact us, you can ring us on nine four one nine zero one double five. Or you can text us on 0488 809 855. And today we're talking about open spaces, cemeteries, parks, hospital spaces that need to be loved and where we need to go. Helen, we saw some very interesting stuff on um, hospital gardens in Britain where... And it was fascinating in the way they changed the planting according to the clients. So there was a, a garden in a very um, that was for people suffering mental illness, and it was a very, very, very calm garden, not much variety, very steady. And then there was another garden which was for mainly spinal victims. And it was full of flowers and high gardens that could be accessed very easily. And, I, and it, was, it was fascinating just seeing that difference in, in application, how much the horticulture could affect 
particularly I found the garden that was used a lot by um, the me- um, mentally ill people. It was just it, a lot of conifers, different shapes, different leaf structures. So it was still very visually interesting, but it was calm. Had a calming influence, yep. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, it, you know, that's where... You know, I, I love the fact that you know there's not a one size fits all. It's like when I talk about sensory gardens. Personally, I think any garden can be a sensory garden. Um, when tr- people ask me about you know how do you create a sensory garden, um, I, I'm very much an advocate of going well. Who is it designed for? Because a sensory garden in a children's setting will be different to an aged care setting or um, a community based setting with a different cohort of people. Because their needs are different. So a bit like that, yes, we, ha- we can enjoy different spaces. Um, and it comes back to good old garden design. You know, 101 is what does the client want, what are the client needs, um, and let's create a garden to suit that and bring in the elements that, you know, from a sensory garden point of view, that, that, that um, have the overlay of what a sensory garden can incorporate, but let's tailor it to meet the needs of that, that cohort. Well, we have somebody on line one who wants to talk to you about exactly the same. Hello. Have Hi, I, hello. this is Ellen. Fire away, uh, Ellen. I'm calling, yes, from the UK. Hi, Ellen, how are you going? Hi, I'm doing fine. I, I was very interested in your conversation because I've also been impressed uh, in the UK. They do uh, a lot of the gardening and things, uh, gardens up in the hospitals, but they actually, um, they seem to take to almost like a British level or a different level where they not only have you know, the sensory aspect or being able to have the patients and the carers come outside or enjoy the garden, but they actually engage them to grow things or even propagate simple plants as another level of, of kind of taking them away from that hospital aspect. And then they, they've actually done some kind of follow-up or research that seems to say that then those patients, even the carers, take that skill that they didn't even know they had and then continue gardening or even small amounts of horticulture once they've been discharged from the hospital. And, and that, that, that peace and calm seems to, to continue once they're at home um, or outside of the hospital. And I didn't know if that's something that you've ever done or, or you know, know any more research about because I, I just thought that was so interesting and I hadn't heard about that anywhere else. Yeah, so um, one of my roles at the hospital where I work at um, uh, is as a horticultural therapist, and it's, it aligns uh, exactly with that. So I find, uh, so it's essentially working with patients, um, doing potting up, propagating activities. You know, one of the things I'm conscious of when I'm meeting people and the, the cohort that I work with in that situation are often people that have had a, a brain injury or a spinal cord injury or maybe a stroke or um, cardiac um, back, uh, background issue. Um, and they are thinking, oh, this gardening thing, no, I can't garden now. But they're thinking in their mind, yeah. I'm digging in the garden, I'm on the end of a shovel. Whereas I'm sitting there going, no, often what happens is I'm sitting with people all around um, a table, potting up, propagating, using tools. Now, for some, you, about a 50-50 split of people that come um, uh, is gardeners or non-gardeners. So you, for oh, some, it's, some, it's actually a new activity for some people. <laughs> 
but for some it's actually a reconnection with a, a, an activity and a passion or even their vocation during their time of hospitalization um so for some when i'm working with them it's it's gives them the opportunity to actually start to use tools again or to reconnect and for some they might be working on some physical skills hand strength after a stroke for example um so it's very practical but for others it's actually not that at all it's actually um an opportunity to do an activity where they go oh i can do things because often in the healthcare in that health crisis situation for them they're very focused on what they can't do because that's very real for them. You know, they may not be able to walk properly yeah. or they yeah. may not be able to use their arm or um, after a stroke as they used to. So they're very aware of what they can't do. And yet here's an activity where they come out and with the support of someone like myself as a horticultural therapist, um, I can show them that they can still do things um, or guide them in ways that they go, actually, I can still do this. So that gives them that boost. It goes, well, if I can do this in this setting, there's other things that I can do too. And also have the capacity to take it home and go, well, that's actually something that I would really enjoy doing at home now. Um, so, yeah, there's a, the, the term horticultural oh, therapy or social and therapeutic horticulture programs uh, really what capture that. And I know that in the UK from it's the social and therapeutic horticulture angle. Um, and it's mm-hmm. um, so it is very much there. And I, I'm aware of gardens um, in the UK under the um, auspices of Horatio's Garden. Horatio's, exactly. Where, yeah. um, which I've had the very uh, fortunate opportunity a few years ago now to get to the Salisbury um, site. And I understand that there are about oh, five gardens into about the aim of 11, I think, of um, creating yes. such gardens across the UK and spinal yeah. um, facilities. So, that, you know, that's really exciting and that's a brilliant example of exactly what you described where it's not just the garden space but it's also a program that goes with it where um, it's working with people and um, transitioning them from you know the hospital setting through to a home but um, but using horticulture to meet various needs emotional physical psychological which is great well no it's fantastic to hear to hear you speak about that because i just thought it was such a unique experience that that garden's there, whether it's for the patient, whether it's for the care, uh, you know, as, as a horticultural therapist, it's great to hear you talk about just the multifaceted aspects that, that can touch people's lives. Because I think so many times, because my other background is being from the United States, and they just they just don't have that cultural aspect where they just, they've done studies to show, you know, if your hospital bed looks out onto a green space, you'll heal faster. Yep. But they don't actually go that next step to say, well, what happened if you actually interacted with that space? There and, is, and it's just such a cultural difference. Correct, yeah. There is a little bit of research, and we I was involved with some here with some of the garden aspect, but it was not the program as such. It was more about people's interaction with the green space and what it what it meant for them. And I think one of the challenges we found when we were looking at how we did the research was how is it... How, what's the practicalities of trying to do that research? Um, yeah, it's a real soft. Yeah, soft and it's also hard, really hard. Hard research with that. Yeah, it's not, really, it's not like a medicine where you go, okay, this group had the tablet, no. this group didn't have the tablet, um, and what's the result? Um, so that's, that's part of the challenge of getting research within this, this field, um, which, is a, which is, you know, a bit challenging in the self of the challenge because we want more research and we want that validation, yeah. particularly in a medical model environment where it's, you know, that research is part of the, the, 
the basis of what we do in healthcare. Whereabouts are you based, Dan? Oh, I'm I'm in the East Midlands, so I'm I, I I'm uh, I've called in a couple times, yes. but I it's the middle of the UK, so I'm up, up in the middle. Somewhere so, near somewhere so near I Nottingham, just, Nottingham perhaps? No, Birmingham. Uh, I'm south of Nottingham. It's uh, Northamptonshire. Um, let's see, that's, that's our biggest one. Is uh, and just almost online with Birmingham. So I'm over to the east of Birmingham. I used to work so. for a Birmingham MP. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perfect. For 10 yeah, years I worked for a Birmingham MP. Oh, bless you. Yeah, I know. We're, we're on the drier side. We don't get quite as wet as Birmingham. But um, I was going to actually ask a gardening question if it wasn't going to interrupt Please the discussion. Please do. But I, well, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I usually try to pick up some type of uh, kind of challenging gardening thing. And during lockdown, I've been growing pineapples. But I, uh, my, my latest thing is I, I heard that the giant sequoias, so the um, like the big redwoods out in California, they actually grow quite well in the UK, and they seem to be holding up to climate change. Um, but not many of them are old enough to actually make seeds. Well, I found a group that tracks the trees around the UK, and I actually found three growing in a local garden. Um, and I, the seeds, I've, I've got the pine cones, and the seeds came out when they were up above the fireplace when it was warm. And now I just didn't know if anybody had any tips on pine pine seed germination <laughs> because I've tried to stratify them. I've put them in, <clears throat> sorry, a couple of different places and kind of let them be in the elements and things. But I just didn't know, do they need any, like, Smoke water treatment, seaweed. I just never germinated a pine cone seed. That's my challenge. Um, hi, Ellen. <laughs> it's Chris here. I, I definitely not an expert not. in this area, but I know that um, there are lots of pines that come up on their own spontaneously in, in Melbourne's climate. Um, stratifying. Um, well, redwoods might have something very unique going on potentially, right? Given their because they do habit. come a very high bushfire area, exactly in mm. California. So yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. be asking Q Gardens, I think, rather than a group of <laughs> yeah, people okay. in Melbourne. Um, Ellen, I, th- I think the person who is we have another series of pine trees down here in the southern hemisphere called Araucarias. Oh, okay. Of which the monkey puzzle you probably know. The monkey puzzle is one yeah, of them. Yeah. Uh, they're yeah. a southern hemisphere pine tree. They are in the fossil records in the north. And Stephen, who you have listened to on the show, is very yeah. involved in our area. And he is the one who comes on who might possibly be able to answer this question. But he's not oh, okay. on again till the 3rd of April. So just put that in okay. your thinking cap. But the fact that there's okay. a group in Britain going around mapping sequoias, it's very, that, that's a very English trait, Ellen, very British, I should say, just having society for <laughs> well, everything. They, that's... <laughs> yeah, they, uh, well, because they also, they posh the name up and they, they're called Wellingtonians. Oh, well, nice. Wellingtonians. So, I, so I listened you, that, to, that was, there was a program the on BBC is, Country or whatever, and I heard it a yeah. few weeks ago in the sequoia Dendron uh, chases, yes. Giganticum, yeah. What you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple, you know, that was the thing to plant your avenue of giant sequoias up to your estate. And the, the trees are gigantic. They're obviously gigantic and they're huge, but not many of them are old enough. 
uh, and just a few of them are starting to apparently make seeds. But they seem to be very resistant to these high wind events that we get where they've actually survived while some of the oaks and some of the other trees have not. So I figured, why not? Have, have a challenge. <laughs> grow, grow a giant sequoia. I'll never see it get any But any, you'd plant any height, these, but you plant these trees will. for your grandchildren, exactly. The monkey puzzle, yeah. is its proper name is Araucaria araucaraceae or something. Yeah, and it, okay. it was named down in Cornwall because um, okay. it, because it, it it was actually um, stolen from Chile. It was it. Oh, okay. It has an edible pine, an edible seed, and it was in um, a very you know a posh dinner, and somebody secreted bits of it into their pocket and <laughs> sent it back okay. to England, and it got the there na- we go. and it grew, and of course there's such an inc- extraordinary shape. That um, yeah. some somebody said of the tree as it was growing down in Cornwall, oh, that that would be a puzzle for a monkey how to get up that tree, and it just stuck, and it became the monkey puzzle tree. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. And that well, is I, that I, is I that same thing of growing unusual pine trees, in particularly yeah, in southern it, Britain because they can do it. Yeah. The old, there's an old, the, um, the council is, is based on an old, old estate, and, and there's just a tiny part of the arboretum left. And for some reason, in the middle of this little town, there are three sequoia giganticums, and I pick up the pine cones. Oh, how fantastic. So, so, I'll, so I'll let you know if anything uh, propagates or anything hatches from the seeds, but I've enjoyed very much the chat. I, I, I'll, I'll come off the line so you guys can continue the discussion. Lovely but chatting. Thanks, thanks, thanks for Ellen. taking my call. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. See ya. <laughs> that was excellent. <laughs> and um, Jane from Carlton rang in, but her line's playing up, so she couldn't help. But she did want us to talk about the trees in the Melbourne General Cemetery because so, she's very concerned that there aren't enough trees there. Well, I'd just like to make a comment about the trees. Uh, I mean, the trees are so important for a cemetery, but uh, it's it's essential that, um, you know, with my garden historian hat on, that, um, uh, you know, a, a strong master plan is prepared and the, the cemetery trust needs to be convinced uh, that that is necessary. Uh, there's nothing worse than just popping a few trees in ad hoc and uh, and changing the whole character of a site. So uh, I'd be recommending that um, you know a, a master plan is done. And that was one of the first things when I went on the Burundara Cemetery Trust. I um, convinced the trust that we needed a tree master plan, which uh, because there were a lot of trees that were past the use-by-date and need to be removed. So um, we, uh, we've we removed a lot of trees and planted a lot, a lot. Well, that's great, because I think it's a really important part of the discussion is around the longevity and lifespan mm. of trees and the maintenance and management yeah. of it. Because yeah, there, there are trees that do decline because well, of various reasons and... and we do need to have that plan of what are we doing with those that are declining, but then what are we doing then to replace? And there's, you know, there's a, a season for each of those, um, which is important. And part of the plan obviously has to be succession planning. So yes. that you plant now and then you plant again in five years and you plant again in five years because I mean, it's one of the things that's happened at the Botanic Gardens. There was a lot of planting done early 
and, and the real need to actually think through both longevity and so you've got old, old trees, middle-aged trees and young trees. Yep. But and that's if, the case with, with all across Victoria. Yeah, it was all developed at the same time and you know, in the last 20 or 30 years so many uh, trees have reached their use-by date. But from now on I think we've learned that we need to have trees of all ages in sight so that there's no mass you know, uh, mass planting going on, that it's just happening all the time so that there are trees of all ages. But uh, the Melbourne General Cemetery is just screaming out for a tree master plan. And, and sadly, yeah. Helen, you, you'd know this too, that if you read previous reports on the cemetery going, on Melbourne General Cemetery going back to the early 80s, there was a bit of an unfortunate tradition there of removing perfectly healthy trees just because they were messy. So it's that kind of, you know, Robin Boyd, the great architect, mm. used to call it, it's to say Australia suffered, at least in the post-war period, a borophobia. So hence the size of street trees, for example, got reduced in the 1950s down to melaleucas and cherry plums, right, that sort of phenomenon. And it just broke my heart reading that, that these beautiful old ficus had been removed. And look, probably because they thought their roots were beginning to ooze over graves. But as I was arguing earlier... Great. Honestly, yeah, and I think a master it's planning called nutrient pickup, isn't it? Well, no, well, it's it's this will be challenging, but I hope I hope the argument can be won that there are sections of Melbourne General Cemetery where the headstones are not particularly they're pretty bland historically they were, mm. the inscriptions are fading, now the soil is eroding around them because there's no vegetation cover because it gets sprayed. I mean, this is not a good situation, and I think you would. You have to work out whether the net benefit over time is to plant trees in and amongst those graves, create a giant, interesting and exciting canopy, even if that means some headstones fall down because, truthfully, they're falling down anyway, right? So um, maybe, and, yeah. maybe there can be a, um, you know, where would you like to be buried status? And there's a for those of us that would want to be buried under a tree or want to be cremated and placed under a tree... Mm that there's actually then a demand for it. Mm. I don't want to be, you know, don't put me out in the sunny spot. I'm, I'm, I've got no yeah. hair. I'm going to get sunburnt. <laughs> put me under the tree, please. <laughs> That's it. Sorry, I'm going to make lots of guffaw noises. Ginger, I'll be in trouble. <laughs> but it's true, absolutely true. Yep. Yes. And the, and, and the people that live around the cemetery and who will potentially use it will also, I mean, they will not go in there on a really hot day because it's yeah. like an oven. And this is a really important thing. We have another call from Robert in Mitcham. Hello, Robert. Yes, good morning all. Good morning. Uh, good morning. My problem is probably not as exotic as that that you've been discussing, but uh, we've got a, a garden that's got a lot of trees, a lot of shade, and uh, recently on one of those very, very hot days, uh, you have two plants that were normal in, in pots, normally well sheltered, got a burst of that very, very hot sun and have seemingly turned up their toes. Uh, every, every leaf on them is brown. Every leaf? There's a camellia and a pyrus. Which camellia is it? Do you know which type of camellia? A sasanqua. Sasanqua, which can take some sun. Is mm. it um, <laughs> the leaves that have just been affected? As in, if you scratch the... The 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 stem and the trunk, any of the branching, is that still Haven't green? Um, just wondering whether it was a bit of shock from the heat, but if it's not, so therefore that's how they've they've been affected. Well, I, but I, if 
I certainly think it was shock from the heat. Yeah, uh, so you... I haven't tried to scratch the bark. But, uh, my wife approached us and said, the camellia is cinnamon, Cindy. Ah, yes. And I appear as... See, I have got both camellias and pyrus in full western sun. I think... The pot sounds to me like it could be the problem. I mean, the other it, it might be that they dried out terribly and that could be history, you know. Mm, well, they, they, these two wouldn't normally get uh, a great deal of sun. Right, and that's going to be a shock. But, uh, Seaweed we, we is always a good, good thing to give to um, a tree that is trying to... or a, a plant that is trying to weather difficult, um, difficult weather. Two different weathers mm-hmm. there. Whether whether, whether the you weather be wet. <laughs> yes. Or whether the weather be dry. Yes. Um it, I I think seaweed is the most obvious thing to immediately try. And if it's the soil has got very dry, remember that they the soil can become quite hydrophobic mm, and all the water goes down the sides in the end and doesn't get how, to the roots. Yeah, how long have they been in the pot for and has it had a recent um, in the last few years, like year two or more, um, repotting? Probably too long. Yep. So I'd, if it was me, I'd um, I'd check, I'd maybe snap a few little branches to see, or bend a few branches to see if there's if they snap and they're dry, they then well, travel that down to see the if if there is a point where it is still clearly vi- um, alive. Clearly alive, yeah. Um, and then if it is, give it a prune back. Um, and tonic it up with some seaweed to boost it, um, particularly with the camellia, because that probably will start to be putting on some new shoots now-ish. Mm. Um, yes, I would have. But then if I would have expected that. Yeah, but if it's um, but if you yeah, if there is still a little bit of life, the other option is if they can repot it and you know trim a bit of the roots off around the edge to then repot it with some new soil, new potting mix um, that then new shoot roots will grow into. Um, and then just keep up a um, a bit of a regime of tonicking with seaweed. Um, that's probably what I would do. But if it's yeah, keep travelling down the path of the down the branch to see if it's viable. And if it's not, then as I think I remember hearing Stephen Ryan saying years ago, if there's a dead plant, um, <laughs> then you mourn it. But then you go, great, there's a, a spot for a new plant. <laughs> um, as as sad as it can be to lose a plant. Yeah, some of Stephen's predictions can be uh, fairly uh, character building. <laughs> <laughs> True. But, uh, there you go. All right. We we have tried the uh, the sea salt, but I'll continue that. But yes, uh, I'll. Uh, accept that they do need to be repotted. Yes, I think that's probably true. Well, best of luck, Robert. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye. Well, I think that sounds like it might be a bit difficult. Yeah, I didn't realise at first that they were in pots. I was really surprised that they would suffer so badly. But, yeah, now it all makes sense. I think they got, unfortunately, were dried out. That was an unpleasant noise. <laughs> yes, where were we? I th- yeah, I think you're right, Chris. I think um, Chris was just saying I think it's probably dried out potentially in the pot. Yes. Um, it happens so quickly on those very hot days. I know. That's why I have a few plants in pots at home and they're generally succulents and cacti, but I do have a few others that I, might, what I put into the treat and treasure category that need a little bit of extra tea or C um, to water and keep up and don't 
usually subscribe to my ah, oh, it'll be fine category. Um, and sometimes that goes well, and sometimes it doesn't go well. And I go, oh, I should have watered that. Yes, and winter. There's a couple of maples that I have, and it's it's that thing. I know that I have put it off the last couple of years, but this year I do desperately need to get them in. Do the work of when they're dormant, taking a chance to get the saw and cut them out, pull them out of the the big ornamental pot, to then treat, give them a bit of love and soil and. My daughter refers to my pots as death row. Death row. If I'm oh. not there, she'll ring up and say, Mum, do you want me to water death row? Oh, oh, that is some of the, the downside of having delightful plants and treasures in pots. Is yes. that I think people forget too that it's not just if you have a, a, a large, particularly woody plant, shrub or tree in a pot and it's getting root bound, so the roots are filling the pot. But even just in some of the... If it's a black pot, the heat, the, yes. just the direct sun on a black pot, the, the roots are heating up. Even things that like the heat don't haven't evolved to have their roots bakingly hot. Correct. They're usually sitting in a in a soil profile that's protected from absolutely the side heat. Yes. But, you know, we gardeners, we still do this. We do these things. I know. It's extraordinary how many things you do that you know you shouldn't and regularly do. Correct. Yes. Because, you know, that's a oh, that's a shiny green plant. Yeah, not a shiny thing that you're distracted by the nursery. We go, oh, that's that azalea. Oh, that's that camellia. I haven't got one of them. I want one of them. Or whatever the plant may be. Well, People Helen, you're, an, you're another person of pots. Oh, yes. Well, I live in a townhouse with very little very little soil to plant things in, so lots of things in pots. And you become a, a slave to these pots. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's some little tricks, you know, putting some of them in in dishes so that, yes, they, they you know, that's one of the saving graces of dishes is that you water it, it soaks, it fills it up, but then it just draws it up as it needs it, as it starts to dry out. As long as you don't leave the dish there over winter when the pot, when the plant Correct. will promptly drown. These are yeah. all the little tricks and mm. things that we learn. And that's, that's actually why I like aquatic plants too. Yes. In pots do it very well because you don't have drainage by definition. And so strangely, even though you think an aquatic plant like a water chestnut or a lotus or whatever it might be, kangkong, um, might be very vulnerable in a pot, actually the fact is because they're quote unquote drowning in water, as it goes down, they're not drying out, if that makes sense. Eventually yeah. they will. So just a bit of a plug for aquatic plants in uh, pots yes. there, folks. Sorry, Chris, should have... Uh, should've... That was a bit of a... An attempt at a segue, but I'm not that. <laughs> but watercress doesn't work because the water needs to be moving. True, although that's that's for the quality stuff. It still grows, but I think the it's a connoisseur thing, right? That it has to be in the flowing water. That's how they cultivate it in Europe, isn't mm. it? Just on the edges of streams, and it's actually like the wabi sabi. No, not wabi sabi. What am I talking wasabi. about? Wasabi. Wasabi. Sorry, that's a slightly different <laughs> Japanese concept. Um, that yeah, if, uh, I've seen video because I tried to grow that wasabi. Yeah, and, and oh, not very well. And then I I, I saw a, a YouTube video of how they do it in Japan, and it's very much like the watercress. Just they they have water pouring over it the whole time. So it's a riparian or river or lake edge plant, or yeah, river it has by it has to have flowing water to be quality. And the Japanese, of course, are very. Um, you know, what's the word, precise about the quality of their food and how it's done. So you either do it right or you just use horseradish is how I understand it. Now, um, And that and horseradish is not a good thing to grow in my opinion. Because it's just so... It's um, virulent. Virulent. <laughs> vigorous and virulent, that's right. 
Um, and speaking of segues, talking mm. about plants, you, mm. out of the three of us that have come in today to come and chat with Virginia, you were the only one that brought a plant in. What have well, you brought in? Well, that's because I, I, I always get asked to do that, and sometimes I've failed dismally, and if you're on with <laughs> Stephen Ryan and others, they bring it. So, yes, I have, finally. I, I have... Wait one sec. <laughs> I just need to grab this one. I, I have brought in... You were speaking of the Tradescantia, the purple one before. Yep. And this may not be the best sample, but I do grow this really beautiful climber, which is a Dioscoria discolor, um, ah. a type of true yam. And I got this from Roy Rama Nursery on the way to Geelong. And as I say, you've got to imagine this one's a little bit had too much light, but this thing is so beautiful. This, this purple underneath is so deep purple normally or can be in the shade. Um, very easy to grow. And speaking of things that either don't you know may not survive winter this this one will so it will look that all all true yams in the genus dioscoria will die back in winter they do that even in the tropics and this thing doesn't produce a big large yam it produces lots of small ones and it will overwinter outside okay don't put it in the dish like you say virginia don't let it but just don't let it drown don't let it drown but it will shoot back it's really beautiful now just to combine the two worlds the yeah. edible bit at the bottom and the visual bit at the top Describing the leaf, I quite like the look of it because you just said like the underside has the purple tinge, but the top has a mottled, sort of pale green, pale purple. It's got would, purple. It be, would you call it yeah, purple? It's got purple in here's it. my better sample here. Sorry, I just realised. So it's it is it is mottled, and in fact, to the point where I That's thought what I like. it's Brazil, it's from Brazil, and I thought it was uh, a cultivar when I first. I thought someone had bred it to be like that. No, this is what it looks like in the wild, which I think is mind-blowing. It looks like one of those fancy begonia leaves. It's yeah. exactly, very much so. So um, so what kind of condition does that need? Because So I'm presuming you're going to take a photo of it and we can stick it up on the... Oh, yeah, sure. Yes, um, absolutely. We'll put it on Facebook. It's very interesting. It can handle, I mean, quite well full sun, but it's much... But it will climb, you know, cover a fence very quickly over the growing season, right? So it is deciduous. In, in quite, not full shade, but in low light conditions, right? So between a house and a fence, for example, and um, with only a few hours of direct sun a day. And um, can that be, can that tolerate intense direct? Like if it's a, yes, a window of two or three hours where the sun's coming between yes, narrow spaces? Absolutely. That'll be perf- okay with it? Yep. Yep. Um, and how do you harvest the air? Well, so I haven't tried, I've actually grown this as an ornamental. Uh-huh. Um, but so I'm yet to. Apparently, you can eat the tubers, which are very small, more sort of like a new potato size. So I'll check in. I'll do that this year, and I'll let you know how I go. And uh, maybe I'll park next to the Austin Hospital, <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, when that happens. Um, so that's that's that one. And look, the other one I brought in was just one of my twelve or so types of sweet potato, and I just, I just, literally... which is growing in a pot, and they do very well in pots. And I guess I just brought it into, and I've spoken about sweet potatoes on this program, you know, ad nauseum before. But um, obviously, just to reiterate that they do grow well in Melbourne and for a good yield, particularly if you get the right variety. But also just to say that they are, they grow well in pots. They're extremely, extremely heat tolerant. Um, they'll overwinter, they'll die back, back and then reshoot if they're in a pot. Sometimes in the ground they'll rot, depending on your soil type. Just that they're very beautiful and that for that period from sort of January through to even early June, depending if you have a frost, they're actually very good ground cover. 
Now, I'd be in trouble with my colleagues at Burnley if I said they were a functional ground cover, which has a particular meaning. <laughs> I think I put that Certain in my report criteria. to the cemetery. Yeah, meaning that it's there forever blocking weeds. Yep. But during the growing season, sweet potatoes look incredibly beautiful en masse and will do, do a great job at, you know, when if there's irrigation or rainfall, when weeds are exploding, they'll suppress those weeds. And what sort of soil do they like? Will they do it in clay or, they, do, or sand? So they... Yeah, so a, a free-draining soil is best, but I used to grow fantastic crops in um, in basalt clay in Alphington, right? Mm, that's well, a heavy, yeah. Yeah, with cracking clay. Yeah. Um, obviously with a lot of compost added and worked. Um, and um, so, yeah, they like a bit of depth to grow in, but they'll actually, the thing about them is that they will, in the growing season, because they love the warmth so much, they're just, kind of powering ahead regardless of the soil type. It's really the overwintering thing that's a problem. So they will definitely rot in a heavier soil. There's no getting around it. So you've got this one here in a pot. Is that mm. if I was to grow one at home mm. and I wanted a in a pot, what's in order to get the harvest as well? Yeah. What's a good size pot? Like uh, I think a um a well, big one, yeah. yeah no, like, how, one. like, no, that's a great. I think because we say pot, but that's true. You know, what, what, but, what's you know, a, I think a, a twenty liter pot or a you'll get some so like tubers you'll always diameter of 30 centimeters minimum or um, i should know this off by heart yeah so that's 30, a, 30 to four, uh, actually 40 yep 40 or more so minimum of 40 centimeter diameter pot which would then have that kind yeah, of because they're so vigorous well. that's right so the bigger the pot the better um, yep. and yep. what is the what sort of sweet potato should you grow in melbourne because there must be some that that's right so the 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 standard orange types are very productive the purple on the outside, the purple skin with the white flesh inside, very good. Um, then, then there's a few others a bit more obscure, but I will say that a, a certain large chain hardware place that we all go to and plants sells some sweet potatoes, one of which isn't very productive, and I should probably give them feedback. So, so can I say the name? Yes, you can. <laughs> so, no, so Bunnings do sell... Um, uh, sweet potatoes for for summer, so they sell the orange type, which used to be called Beauregard, but is that is a, was a Confederate general, so that's kind of gone. Gone. Um, now called Sun Gold or Evangeline. Then there's Northern Star, which is an Australian variety, which is the purple outside, white inside, and then this other one that they sell. It's just it's very peculiar how they the differences in performance. Okay. So that one, so far, has been a dud. And um, by dud, you mean doesn't not, it doesn't grow, doesn't produce right. no, well, great, or grows great, well but doesn't? Great question. So usually they always produce a massive foliage. Yep. All the different. Of course, I, I do think they're a very good looking plant. Very good. And in North America, you know, they grow them in hanging baskets, for example. Just yep. and, and in fact, there are. Um, I did see in Bunnings an ornamental one the other day, bright yep. yellow. So the dud one may be more of an ornamental uh, preference. It's, it's, they're selling it as a. Um, as, as a food. As a food one. It's just it, – it, so the foliage will go rampant. You just won't get much of a yield. The, the white ones with the little flecks of purple is the same. There's called Hawaiian Sunshine. For some reason um, – and there's a sweet potato grower, um, Mark Rathbone from Echuca, who's um, – I've forgotten his Instagram handle. But, you know, he's he's up there in the heat, right north of the Great Divide, mm. and he produces sweet potatoes, sells at Melbourne Farmers Markets. He can't get Hawaiian Sunshine to yield. So I'm not sure – What's going on there? What? what? Yep. So, go so st- it can just 
be a not particularly productive one, can't it? Yeah, that's right. And, and there is, is that, there is are some, but the thing is that the non-commercial ones, if you if you like, are very popular with some communities, right? Like the, the there's one that's purple inside and out. And for growers, it's a bit difficult because sweet potatoes produce their tubers cryptically. It kind of sometimes they will push a tuber out into obscure places in the soil. That makes it difficult to, to harvest mm. yeah, where they are. So, yeah. So that was my little contribution today. Well, that's very exciting. We now have Peter from Altona online. Hello, Peter. Oh, come on, Peter. Peter, are you there? We seem to have lost Peter, I'm afraid. Maybe if he could ring back and we might be able to find you, Peter. Well, I I would really like to grow sweet potatoes. I've got edible canna, which I keep trying to get rid of, and I've never bothered to try eating the canna, and it's absolutely beautiful, but it's so big. It just takes up so much space. Well, you've got the space, so that's that's Mm. the... The beauty, you, you can grow it for us who don't have space. <laughs> we'll do a swap with you for something else. But I've got it in my veggie garden and I don't have uh, a lot okay. of space in there. Yeah, yeah. true. And I, have, I am having such a massive fight with rabbits. Right. That, um, oh, really? Oh, shocking. The edible canner, I mean, I, I have eaten it. I've grown it and eaten it. Um, it. It needs a lot of boiling. It's actually, it has no toxicity though. So it, it is an interesting one. But I, there's a couple in Queensland years ago who were, It'll put a lot of effort into cooking it up, and I followed one of their tricks, and it, it's kind of quite nice as a. This is not the best word, but as a type of gruel, <laughs> you kind of boil it and blend it, and it's actually very palatable. It, it has these massive starch grains, so it's very good for people with allergies, um, right? Uh, or you know, gluten intolerant and all that. And they do make cellophane noodles out of it in Vietnam, right? So it is, but you know, it's it's at the bottom of my list of things that I like to eat. I mean, towards the bottom, right? So, there's no point in me rushing to dig it up. Um, not if you already like sweet potatoes. Potatoes. I love sweet yeah, potatoes so, yeah. and potatoes. Yeah. Now, and I also preference the location for sweet potatoes. Yes, and um, it is lovely to look at, and it's very good for the compost. It's a good mulch, exactly. Just slashing it back and mm. using it as mulch. It's mm. uh, and it's. Growing quite well at Burundara Cemetery. Not that we're encouraging people to eat the tubers out of the <laughs> out of the graves. Out of the cemetery, no. Lisa from Hawthorne wants to talk to us about ginkgos. Ah. They're speaking of old trees. Hello, Lisa. Oh dear, we seem to be having trouble with our phones at the moment. Can you hear me? Ah, Lisa, yes, we can. Hello. Oh, good. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, I have a question about a ginkgo tree that I have in my garden. Um, I think it's probably about 20 years old, but in the last couple of years it's actually started having fruit, which hadn't um, occurred previously. And I was just wondering uh, what you could tell me, whether it's something that I could potentially join grow ginkgos from the fruit or uh, anything that you might know about that? Um, Lisa, I think the answer is yes. I'm going to quickly cheat and look at my phone on this one because there's actually <laughs> a big... Um, because they're, they, um, they're um, dioecious ginkgos, so they have male and female mm-hmm. um, trees, and there's a mm-hmm. big old one quite well known in North Fitzroy that has fruit, and I just rode past it the other day and thought I must stop and um, get some. So in a sense, I've, I'm asking myself the same question. At the moment, but I, mm-hmm. 
So if I'm and they maybe... are and the female trees are smelly. Yes. Well, I've been told that, but I've never noticed that, um, and I haven't actually tried squashing a fruit to see if it is smelly. But um, the the tree itself, there's no, I haven't noticed any smell at all. Well, it's wonderful that you're getting the fruit. There's a um, a road just near the cemetery in Stoke Newington we were talking about earlier, which has got about ten female ginkgos growing in it. And they definitely smell when the fruit falls onto the ground, I have to say. So is it at the fruit drop stage? Um, of yeah, only, yes. only one or two have dropped in, in the garden so far, but yeah, there's good. You know, a number of them now on the tree. It's, it's looking easy, Lisa. It's just expect, you know, it's really just grow them um, as you would any seed in a sense. Just cover them, moist location definitely, it's saying here, and expect keep moderately moist, expect germination in 30 to 60 days. And would um, I do that at this point of the year? A great question. Let me... Uh, I mean, I suspect it's probably best in spring. Okay, so what would you do with the, the fruit now? Try and dry them or what What would you do? Um, yeah, keep, keep... I mean, obviously they're fleshy, so you might end up yep. with a bit of a smelly mess. So you could try and soak, you could try and soak them and remove the flesh. Um, mm-hmm. However, I mean... Yeah, I have a few things I grow that that have, um, you know, you're theoretically trying to get the seed out of the fruit, but I usually just leave them outdoors where they can, you know, be smelly on their own. Yes. Um, and say tamarillo, for example, I just usually, if they're rotting, squash them into a pot. I actually put them, I actually do sow them in winter and just let them sit there and wait till spring till they just pop up. So maybe that's what you should do. That's actually, what, uh, that's yeah, what that's I'd probably do because when thing. you think about it, that's what the tree would do in the, in nature. It would throw the seed yeah. down and wait for it to grow. Mm. So mm. I think when in doubt, follow what happens in nature. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay. It's... All right, well, I'll give that a go. Thank you very much. And I also just have one question about wisteria, if I uh, can ask that too. Yep, quickly. Um, so I've got a beautiful cream wisteria um, in the garden also, which is very strong growing. Uh, when is really the best time to prune them? Well, I would. I think you need to... The, the theory on wisteria is you prune them twice every year. And you, okay. And the, the buds will be forming now, so you can prune yes. off the long whippy bits. Yes. Um, just being careful to look where the buds are. Okay. Because they get such long, whippy bits, Wisteria. Yes, so they have got that. So around autumn, and when would be the other time after flowering? After flowering, yep. Yep. I have a bit of a stop press on the ginkgos, Lisa. It's a bit more complicated than I let on, So, if I I may. Um, Because they actually do come from a cold climate, they need winter or cold stratification, meaning they need to have a dormancy um, broken by going through... um, three months of cold so you'd probably want to even as it says here put them in a bag and stick them in the fridge for three months so i think it is going to be a spring sowing you've got a spring have you got a spare fridge maybe not the main fridge the yeah, kitchen. Just, and then it's even suggesting a bit of um scarification meaning a bit of rubbing of the seeds with sandpaper once they're out of the fridge so um Oh, hang on, it's getting getting even more complicated. Soaking the seed in 3% solution of hydrogen peroxide. So I think do a bit a bit of extra research, go online, see what others have done. It's definitely doable. All this right. stratification and scarification is quite standard for a lot of plants, but there you go. Okay. It's right. definitely well, worth look. <laughs> sitting Thank on you. your computer and having a bit of That's a look, it. I think. All right. Thanks very much for your help. Thanks, Lisa. Bye. Bye. 
And it looks like we have Peter from Altona back again, which is good. Peter, are you there? I, I am. Good, Excellent. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm uh, a new gardener, and I have a hibiscus that I was interested to know when's the best time to either prune it or, or be able to move it. I would, it's, um, I would move it in winter, probably late winter, because it's deciduous. Anybody yeah. else? Yeah, what kind of hibiscus is it, Peter? Is it a um is it the the uh standard um Syriacus. Syriacus, which is a truly deciduous hibiscus, or is it a uh a subtropical hibiscus that is a bit winter sensitive? So yeah. I'm not hundred percent sure. What I do know is it's it's about it's flowering uh, with really nice yellow flowers at the moment. Over winter, it, do- it doesn't flower, but it doesn't lose all its leaves. And what's the leaf look like? It sounds like it might be a native hibiscus. Uh, it's a quite deep green, huh. quite large. Yeah, it, it sounds it sounds like one of the um, tropical no, hibiscus tropical, that do yep. that do really well in Melbourne. Um, they uh, now one, one good news is they strike easily from cuttings. So if you were to transplant it in winter and it were not to recover, if you'd taken some cuttings, you'll you'll never lose it. Um, I I think that I, I like Virginia's advice: late winter or just wait till spring until it's a bit warmer. But that they generally, I grow hibiscus the edible one. I mean, they're all the flowers are edible, all the petals. But um, uh. It used to be that some hibiscus in Melbourne were a bit dicey, right, With if you had lots of frost, but now with um, climate change, they seem to not even be defoliating much mm. anymore. And so he's, I think in, it's probably, he's in Altona, so he's not going uh, to get very cold there, are you, Peter? Oh, yeah, with the... No. Uh, yeah, I think the answer is um, pretty much... I, let, let it finish off the season, transplant late winter. I like that advice. If anyone... Give it a little August. bit of a, a, slight, yeah, August. a slight pruning... To yep. reduce it a little bit after it's done the flowering, and look up how to take some cuttings off it and have a go at that as well. I, I, I will. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you Bye. very much, Peter. And next we have Gloria, Gloria in Bulleen. Hello, Gloria. Oh, hi, Virginia. Hi. <laughs> um. Oh, two things: ginkgos and Melbourne Cemetery. So many ginkgos in the Melbourne Cemetery. You're talking about cemeteries and ginkgos. <laughs> we were, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, just, just a by the way. But I'm actually just <clears throat> calling about, I've got viburnum, seven of them along my north fence. And they're going brown from the bottom up. The leaves are going brown. And crisp, like drying brown, like oh, dying. They're right at the back fence, so I haven't crawled through the other plants to see if they're crisp. They're certainly brownish. Because I know that they can periodically just turn up the hills. Viburnum. Oh, dear. Viburnums. Do you know which viburnum it is, Gloria? It's the odorolodon. I'm very much Oh, that one, yes, yes. Viburnum odorolodon. Just make it up. Excellent. Sorry? We're, um, we're all looking a little bit puzzled as to why they've gone brown. Oh, okay. 
Uh, we did have an extremely dry February. So, so yeah, is it just in the last month that you've noticed it? Uh, pretty much, but I have a watering system around the back fence. So, so, what the, co- so the first thing to do is to check the watering system. Oh, that it's working? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Good. Oh, Good. Okay, yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. not the solution. Nope. Does it face west? I mean, is it... Sorry, is it Oh, what? yes. Um, Helen's just passed me a note saying spotted mite. I mean, viburnum very, well, this viburnum tinus is notoriously that vulnerable. That species, yeah. But, um, but I guess... Uh, when, when, you, when you do get in to the back parts of the garden and have a, a bit of a look... Crawl, crawl through the, the, the forest. Yeah. Crawl um, through immerse, the shrubbery. Immerse yourself in the shrubbery, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, have a bit of a closer look at the leaf and if there's, you know, things like spotted mite or... Um, you know, how, would that, how would that look if it was spotted mite? Well, it's not really brown. It's more a grey... Um, a grey colouring, mottled grey, um, yep. white even. Yes. It's quite because they're a sucking insect. So, well. so, you, so you, if it, if it is that, what would I do? You'd probably wait for the winter at this stage. Yep. Yes. So you're in Bulleen, you said. Yep. Yep. Um, I am. What I would do is um, take a few um, pieces, cuttings. Oh, down to Bulleen Art and Garden. Yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, put it in a plastic bag, a snap lock, yeah. <laughs> plastic or something, or a glass jar, whichever you want to do, whichever's the easiest. It. Just so, right. just in, if you I always remember that from uh, nursery work that you know you don't want to move pests and diseases around, but if you can do that and or take photos, um, and go in and show them and um, give them a bit of context of the even a photo of the space as well, just so they can look at the environment. That it's sitting in and growing in. On, on a day when one of the horticulturists there know what they're talking about. Yeah, just go and have a chat. And if they don't know, they'll find someone else. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. I, you know, coming in often when I worked in a nursery, we'd often have people do that, bring bits in, and it's a, it is a bit of detective work. Um, okay. But the more information, um, you know, it's kind of like solving a murder. If you've, you've got the more information you've got on the murder... <laughs> The TV shows you see, you go, ah, oh, so that means this, this, or this. So, yes, yeah, if you can take. Yeah, the Vernums are being murdered by something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Maybe I didn't use the right example there, but yes, potentially they're being you know, sucked out of their goodness. Well, good luck with yes. that then, Gloria. Thanks, Virginia. Thanks. Okay, darling. Bye. Okay. Yeah, bye bye. And we've got one we will just fit in. Ian in Sunbury. Ian will have to be quite quick. Okay, guys, yeah. Just, uh, you're talking about pots before. Yep. Um, I've, I, I'm talking more about indoor pots. I've got um, three plants that are um, uh, on, uh, in pots, but they're those self-watering pots. Now, you mentioned that um, uh, uh, it's um, you don't want to drown the roots in winter. So with the, with the uh, self-watering pots, am I better off just watering from the top and not worrying about the self-watering part of it, or, um, um, or can I... Just can I use the self water? You know, fill, fill, uh, put the put the water in the bottom during the summer and not in the winter. Is that I, that's what it, you're saying? Ian, I think yeah. I think you the the saturated layer, the the the, the area of high levels of moisture at the bottom of those pots, which actually happens in all pots, but more in a self watering pot, um, is is can be pretty deadly to a lot of indoor plants in winter. 
Just just yep. keep things on the dry side generally, you know, as a as a rule of thumb for so many indoor plants because they're usually from tropical environments, either they're rainforest right. trees or they're understory like a monstera. It's it's you know if you've really been through the big indoor plant phase, you you learn the hard way, in my experience. Yeah. So you really you just got to stop yourself. Just using monstera as an example. They're actually, it's surprising because they come, they have such large leaves. They come from these tropical, often monsoonal environments. We often think, oh, they're going to need water all year. But in fact, they're actually adapted to periods of actually extreme dry and they're competing with giant trees in their natural habitat. So if you had had a monstera or other plants wilting in winter and you hadn't been watering, okay, sure, but that's highly unlikely to happen. Right, okay. Because I nearly lost a couple of plants because I, I, I drowned them basically, you know, and, and uh, they're coming good now. And I'm just all I'm doing is watering from the top um, at the moment, just to, and very sparingly. So yeah. they're, they're they're responding to that. But Beautiful. yeah, I'm just wondering whether I can I, I can then start putting water in the bottom if I wanted to. Yeah, and I think if you're doing the top water, you'll see it come down into the drain down into the lower section. Um, yeah, and. And I, I tend to be a bit like that. I'm a top waterer, but then we're going to have to go now. I'm afraid we're yep. at the end of our no show. You've nailed it, Ian. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much, and thank you everybody for listening today. Cheers. Mm-hmm.